Hi out there to all you wonderful Vetfolio Boys people. I'm so glad that you're back again for this episode sponsored by Elenco, where I'm joined by Dr. Lindsay Starkey to discuss what is an incredibly important topic, ticks. So I'll be honest, talking about ticks sometimes gives me the heebie-jeebies because I'm really not a fan of bugs, especially when I learned that there's a newish species of ticks on the radar that parasitologists are keeping an eye on. But I always learn so much when we do talk about them, and Dr. Starkey brought lots of fun energy to the conversation. It was a blast talking to her. I hope to have her back again sometime to talk more about bugs. Dr. Starkey was raised on a cattle farm in Northeast Kansas and earned her bachelor's degree in animal sciences from the University of Arkansas. She completed both her DVM and PhD in veterinary biomedical sciences at Oklahoma State University, where her graduate research focused on several vector-borne infections of dogs. She's a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Microbiology, Parasitology Subspecialty, completing her residency training through the National Center for Veterinary Parasitology at Oklahoma State University. Dr. Starkey joined the faculty at Auburn University in May of 2016, where she's involved in various research projects involving vectors and vector-borne pathogens, diagnostic parasitology, and parasite consultation and outreach, which we talk about a little bit in the podcast. Dr. Starkey is also heavily involved in the teaching of parasitology to first, second, and fourth year veterinary students, and she's received two teaching awards while at Auburn, most recently being awarded the Zoetis Distinguished Teacher Award in March of 2020. Let's go ahead and get into our episode. Well, today I'm joined by Dr. Lindsay Starkey to talk about ticks. So Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Cassie. I'm really excited. I'm excited to have you here to talk to us about some of this because I hear that there is a new tick that we need to be worried about. Not sure how I feel about that, but first question is, is that true? Is there a new tick that we need to be on the lookout for? Yeah, so maybe not for you in Florida yet. Thank with goodness. A disclaimer on there. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we do have a new ish. I'm going to say ish because it's been at least a decade now when they went back through some of the records and found evidence of this tick present in the United States. It's been in other parts of the world for much, much longer, but it is new ish to us. And really, the report started in 2017. And so we're about five years out now ish from this now. But yeah, the Asian longhorn tick, it's here to stay. I don't think we're getting rid of this one. Gosh, the Asian longhorn tick. I will tell you, like, I'm definitely not a fan of bugs at all. So I'm picturing like, you know, this tick with long horns, like chasing it. It's, it's terrifying. So anyway, getting away from my clear insectophobia here, tell us a little bit more about the Asian longhorn tick. I mean, who is this tick that we're learning about now? Yeah, so its fancy name is Haemophysalis longicornis, and it does have some anatomical features that lent it to getting its name, the longhorn tick. But for us here, it's going to look very similar to the brown dog tick, or Ripocephalus, a tick that we're very used to seeing on dogs, especially for you there in, in north central Florida. It's like the state tick of Florida. We're learning more about it. We're extrapolating a lot of what we know from countries that have been dealing with this tick for a really long time doing a lot of reconnaissance, if you will, and keeping track of where this thing is showing up and moving into and what it's capable of doing. Gotcha. And for the record, I said insectophobia. I am aware that ticks are not insects, <laughs> in case anybody was wondering. 
Yeah. Uh, Acarophobia, I guess, would be the more appropriate term. Oh, yeah. I would not have come up with that on my own. I'm glad you told me what the word was for it because I definitely have that. I don't like them when they're on me. I love talking about them and working with them. But like when I go hiking, I don't want to tick on me. Absolutely. And of course, you know, one of the primary reasons for that is disease transmission. This is the big thing we worry about with ticks, especially novel tick species that we're seeing. So what do we know about this tick and its ability to transmit disease? It does a lot of things in its native lands. And so Southeast Asia and Australia, they've been dealing with it for a while and it can transmit some, some pretty bad things to people, at least a virus that causes severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome in people. That's like the whole, it has an acronym, right? And we're not aware that that's here, but what it can do is kind of the big question. What we naturally have circulating amongst our ticks and our wildlife reservoirs and whatnot is this tick able to pick it up and be a competent vector for some of the things we're more used to? And it seems like it's been documented to transmit a tideleria to cattle domestically, and it's probably capable of other things too. And this tick is not picky, Cassie. It will feed on about anything it gets the chance to feed on. So some ticks are kind of picky and their host preferences, but this one has been documented on over 30 different kinds of, of species, humans included, and dogs and cats and our livestock. So definitely a tick we need to be cognizant of. So for anybody keeping score at home, we have a tick that will feed on anything, transmits a really bad disease where it's from, and maybe can transmit more diseases here. Great. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think it's like raise all the red flags. Sure. You know, the tick apocalypse. No, we're not there. We can handle this. It's just something new that we got to learn about and be aware of. I like it. So a lot of ticks show up in different seasons. What about this one? Does it have a season or does that kind of go with it not being picky that it's present all year round? No, that's a good point. And so a lot of ticks do have their season within the year. And I'm glad you said it like that. So a lot of people have this thought that, you know, tick season is really summertime, or maybe if they're being generous, they think spring through fall, but we do have ticks that are present now over the winter months, regardless of your latitude. And so, yeah, tick season's truly year round, but for this one, it is more that spring through fall activity tick. Okay. So we're seeing it. Is that pretty typical of a lot of the ticks that we have here in the States or are they present in different seasons, depending on the type of tick? No, that's the classic tick season, right? So our amblyoma ticks, our dermocenter ticks, they, most of them are more, you know, that spring through fall, but brown dog ticks, ripocephalus, they can survive inside. And so there's not as much seasonality to them per se. And then our deer ticks or exodes, they're actually active now here where I live in Auburn, pulled some off a horse in my back pasture just last week. And then people are bringing them in off their dogs and leaving them in little baggies on my desk right now. Cause that's like, <laughs> a gift students give back to me is they know I love ticks. And so they'll bring me ticks that they find, but yeah, that is the cooler season tick. And even further North, it's still the cooler season tick up there. It doesn't, obviously if it's like below freezing and feet of snow on the ground, this tick's not happy, but it's definitely happy at cooler temperatures compared to our other, what we think of as more classical tick season ticks. Okay. And so you're talking about exodes being the cooler season tick or this yeah. Asian longhorn? No, no, no. Exodes. So the deer tick. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So take home there, of course, being year round protection against ticks for everybody. 
Absolutely. We really can't ever take much of a break. And, you know, we can't predict the weather with any degree of certainty, it seems. And the weather seems to be changing, which, you know, these sorts of arthropods cue into really quickly. And we're the the slow ones. We're the ones struggling behind trying to keep up. Goodness, isn't that the truth? So what about the distribution of the Asian longhorn tick? You mentioned that in Florida, we seem to be okay for the time being, which I'm very happy to hear. Where do we find this tick? Yeah, that's a great question. And so when we first started talking about it and realizing this tick was here, uh, New Jersey was kind of that first finding, right, on some sheep there in New Jersey. But over the past few years, this tick has been found. I don't want to say it spread because it's probably been there and we just didn't realize it. But it's been found in over 17 states now, as far west as Missouri and Arkansas, as far south as Georgia is one of the most recent additions to the the keeping track of it map, if you will. And then up in like upstate New York and Rhode Island. So it's kind of spanning that Appalachian eastern chunk of the United States right now and maybe in other places too. Time will tell. I'll be on the lookout for it and I'll mail it to you. And <laughs> Do it, do it. I will. Well, but for those of you out there listening, I mean, the veterinarians are going to be the ones that find this thing. And that's why us paying attention is so important because we're going to see it on the dogs and cats walking into our clinic. And we're going to be the ones that say, hey, this thing looks a little funky and maybe look into it, right? Absolutely. We talked about kind of the limited distribution of the Asian longhorn tick. What about other ticks? Are we finding them in more places than we used to? There's a lot of tick variety out there of our domestic species. And then if you look in wildlife, that's even worse. But, you know, the Southeast is blessed with a lot of insect and and spider and snake and tick variety. But the whole Eastern U.S. has quite a variety of tick species. When you look at the amblyomas that have moved further north, the dermacenters that have been there forever, exodes spans that whole region, right? Rhipocephalus seems to be a little more common the further south you go in the United States, but anywhere you are in this country, there is probably some tick that is there with you, whether or not you realize it. And it may not be for the whole year. It may be sporadic within the year, right? Depending on how cold and arid you are, but there's lots of ticks out there. So lots to be aware of and educating our pet owners on and with the way people travel. I mean, I just hopped in the car and went to Arkansas for Thanksgiving, right? Like lots of people travel with their pets. So the risk may be there and we don't naturally think about it, right? Because we don't think about, well, maybe it's not in my backyard, so it's not an issue, but those animals may not always stay in your backyard, right? Absolutely. As with so many other parasites and infectious diseases and all of this stuff that feel like a lot of that just tends to travel a lot more because of us traveling with our pets, you know, their family members and come with us and so do all of these other fun things sometimes. Yeah. And that's honestly probably how this tick ended up getting here at some point in time. It hitched a ride on something, right? Whether that's that's something the... was on a boat or a plane, I don't know. <laughs> oh, exactly. And that's the perfect segue into my next question. Cause I was going to ask, you said, you know, native to, I think you said Southeast Asia and Australia. So do we have any idea how this guy showed up here? Someone may, but I sure, I sure don't. <laughs> But it's here and it's here to stay. Our ability to eradicate ticks is very limited. We've successfully done it from the United States once, but that tick keeps creeping back in across the Rio Grande. So we're keeping an eye on that one too. But when we talk about ticks that can feed on a number of things like this one can, there's really not any hope for eradication. 
So like you mentioned before, as veterinarians, we're kind of part of this surveillance effort to find and identify this tick. How do we identify it? What are we looking for? Yeah. So a few key features that I like to tell people to look for when they are looking at ticks. So first, get them off the animal as safely as possible. Use a good pair of forceps or tweezers. And if you do that, you'll hopefully preserve their mouth parts as part of that removal process, which can be important for identification. And so you want to look at their mouth parts and you want to look at their back and that's called their scutum. So it's this hard surface along their dorsum. And some ticks have a pattern to that. Some ticks don't. And with their mouth parts, some ticks have longer mouth parts. Some ticks have shorter mouth parts. And if you kind of get a handle on these characteristics, then you can pretty much tell what kind of tick you're dealing with in that practice that day. What's the best way to try to get them off and preserve their mouth parts? Like that's never been something I've ever done is like, go look at mouth parts under a microscope. Like what would I do to preserve those mouth parts and look at those? Yeah, just proper technique and removal. And so it's not recommended that you try to twist the tick off because they don't actually have corkscrew shapes to any of their (laughs) mouth parts. They're like backwards facing fish hooks if you want to think about them that way. So slow, steady, being patient and removing them with a good tool that can get really close to the skin is helpful. If you use your fingers or fingernails, I mean, there is a potential risk of you putting pressure on the tick and actually helping it inject more things into the thing it's still attached to, which is not so great. And if you have, you know, a hangnail or a tiny little lesion on your hands and maybe you bust this tick open and it's full of blood and pathogens, you know, there, there is that very slight potential that something bad could happen as a result of that. So yeah, get you a good pair of forceps. Every veterinary clinic has plenty of forceps lying around or really skinny hemostats if you want. And then it's really a good idea beyond that to save them rather than put them in this giant tick cemetery funeral home jar (laughs) that a lot of clinics have. I like that they're doing that, right? Then you can show the jar to all the clients, be like, look at all the ticks we found. That's fine. But for at least a couple of weeks, it might be nice to save them individually because one, if you weren't able to identify it, you could potentially send it to someone to identify, which can be helpful in talking about different diseases that can be posed by this tick. Or like this one, we're talking about new invasive tick species being discovered and reported. It can be very important, but say you do get an animal that comes down with something a week or so after this tick was removed, maybe it was related to that tick. Maybe our diagnostics in that patient can't necessarily get us an answer, but we could have that tick tested. And if a pathogen's in that tick, it might be playing a role with what's going on in the animal. It's not a guarantee by any means, but you know, you can macerate that tick to pieces and run a bunch of tests on it and maybe find something when you can't macerate the dog or cat that you're trying to treat, right? Certainly not recommended. (laughs) We're limited on what we can do in that client-owned animal potentially, but do what you want to the tick, right? So saving them in either the freezer in a little Ziploc baggie or in a little vial of alcohol, ethanol for a couple of weeks. And then you can put them in the communal cemetery. That's fine. (laughs) Or whatever you want to do with them at that point. But if you get past that two-week point, you're probably pretty clear that, you know, maybe this tick did not cause anything acute. Now that's not to say that something couldn't rear its head later on, but. Absolutely. Is there anything in particular at this point in the United States that we need to be concerned about as far as like the Asian longhorn? Is there a specific pathogen that we're worried about them transmitting in the United States? Or is it more that we're concerned they could pick up some of the more common tick-borne diseases that we see? Well, if you've got livestock listeners out there, tyleriosis, most definitely. And this tick has actually exsanguinated cattle. 
and what you know beside pathogens that might affect the blood but yeah just straight up blood loss from an overt amount of ticks being present on an animal and we've seen that with dogs and brown dog tick infestations or dogs with overt just numerous numerous ticks right they can be anemic just from the blood loss there we don't think it's going to be a primary lime vector which is good news exodes gets to keep that status i guess if you will the deer tick but its ability for things like ehrlichiosis, rickettsiosis, anaplasmosis, it's its really kind of up in the air. This tick really does do a lot of different bacterial and viral pathogens throughout the world. And so the potential is it's going to do something. We just aren't really sure exactly what and to what extent right now. So definitely worth saving and, you know, trying to get that information and figure that out. Yeah. Um, Lots of people looking ma- at this right now. I, I would imagine. Absolutely. One of the things you mentioned was looking at their back and we kind of circled back to the mouth parts, but what are we looking for on their back to help identify them? Yeah. So Asian longhorn ticks will have no pattern on their back. They'll be plain brown and they'll have short mouth parts. But another tick that we have in this country that has that same description, that same vague description is the brown dog tick, short mouth parts, plain brown on their back. So we can distinguish that from, you know, dermocenters, which usually have some pretty gold linear type pattern and amblyomas, which have that linear pattern if you're in the deep south. And then there's the lone star tick that, you know, has the white spot or the subtle white markings along the periphery of the male. So those are our pattern ticks. But yeah, it's going to be difficult to distinguish from a brown dog tick. And so again, that's where it's really important that if you're concerned, saving these ticks and getting them in the hands of someone who does know those differences, if you're not capable in the practice, because you've got a lot to worry about out there, right? Like save the tick and send it to someone who just wants to look at ticks for their, their day in day out job. And that that's me. And there's others like me out there, <laughs> but don't ask me to spay your dog because it's just not going to go well at this point in time. Oh, goodness. So if, you know, when I think that's great advice to get them to somebody who who wants to look at them all day, because I mean, we've certainly established that that person is not me, but I will spay your dog. <laughs> What's the best way? You know, where do we go? Where do we send them? What kind of resources are out there? So a couple of really great resources, you could start with your state diagnostic lab. There is probably an entomologist or parasitologist associated with the state lab that can get this done or can get you into the hands of whoever can get it done if they're not super duper into like tick identity, right? There's a couple of nationwide type of projects going on. So there's the show us your ticks survey run out of Oklahoma state under the guidance of Dr. Susan Little, and they're still accepting ticks. And so you can literally contact them and mail your ticks to them. Dr. Mather with Tick Encounter, they'll actually do digital tick ID if they can. So based on a photo, you can submit your photo through their website. And if they can't tell for whatever reason from your photo, then they might ask you to submit that tick for for clarification. Or if it's something like an Asian longhorn tick, you know, for further identification and testing to make sure. So there's several outlets, you know, you could reach out to me. I'm an Auburn, right? And I I can usually tell from a picture what kind of tick it is if it's a decent picture. But y'all can get this identity done in-house if you really want to. You get that one person that's kind of into it, trained up on basic tick anatomy, if you will. And you can even use the good zoom on most cell phone cameras now to get a good enough glimpse of those mouth parts and that scutum or that that pattern on their back to tell what these ticks are. But there's definitely plenty of people who do it for you if you are not into it. <laughs> oh, very cool. Very cool. I actually didn't know about ticking counter and doing it digitally. That's a cool resource. Yeah. Pet owners can submit pictures too. Oh, perfect. So yeah. that's a huge surveillance tool. 
Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, most importantly, how do we manage this and other tick species? You know, we're talking about wider spread and new tick species and stuff like that. So what do we do about it to help prevent disease transmission? Well, fortunately, I mean, you and I are living in an era where we have an amazing armory of flea, tick, heartworm, intestinal parasite preventives. And a lot of those have been bundled together. We love bundling, right? The, the more bang for our buck we can get. So we have lots and lots of options, but we as veterinarians can't just say, oh, this is the best thing for everyone, right? Because that, that product still does not exist. We're really close when it comes to cats. Honestly, we're getting really stinking close with cats, but with dogs, we still have to have those discussions of what's your lifestyle like? What you as a pet owner, what's your preference? Do you want something topical on the outside of the animal? Do you want something removable-ish? Not that we should be removing it, right? But like a collar, or do you want to give them that treat? And how often do you want to give it? Are you good at remembering to do these things? Or do we need <laughs> to take some of that into our hands to make sure it's getting done? And so once we have those conversations, do you have cats? Do you have kids? Like what are what are all the things that we're trying to figure out here? Then we can come up with that best regimen and best product or products. It still may be a couple for, for some of our clients out there, right? And not every product's the same. They all have different levels to, you know, how effective they may be or what all they cover. So making sure we have those conversations, making sure we know what the risks are to the pet and the family, what the preferences of the family and pet, right, are, do they have food allergies, do they have skin allergies, there's all these things to consider, but we have lots of really good, really safe products out there to choose from. And when we're talking about some of these products, right, and you specifically asked about how we're going to prevent disease, right, the products are labeled to kill the ticks, to kill the fleas, but any tick that is never allowed to bite can't transmit something. And then ticks that are killed or impacted so quickly, as soon as they do, I shouldn't say bite, right? It's attached and start feeding. But if we can impact them from one, never being able to attach or two, impact them so quickly after they've attached that they still can't functionally transmit pathogens, then that's the ultimate goal, right? Like, clients never want to see a tick. I get that. But really the end game here is we don't want them to get anything as a result of that tick interaction, right? Whether or not we ever saw the tick, we don't want them to get something from that interaction. And so there've been several studies that have been done at this point now showing that different products can block the transmission of different pathogens and different products can work faster or slower necessarily co compared to one another to impact that tick's ability to feed and potentially transmit. And so Elenco recently did a study where they looked at how quickly something like Cordelia or Lodolaner can impact that tick's ability to feed. And if, if they can't feed, then they can't transmit pathogens. They're going to quickly die. They're going to dehydrate, whatever. So really, really good data out there now about how quickly these oral products can kill these ticks after they start their attachment. And a lot of them work fast enough that you are gonna prevent the transmission of many, hopefully all pathogens, right? If you've got an, a, the right dose on the animal and you're using it compliantly. But we also have to keep in mind that, you know, 
there are situations where something like a topical repellent type of thing would be the better fit for the family or maybe an adjunct, right? You can always do two things. If the, if the family can afford to do it, you're unlikely to, to reach any toxicity issues in most of our pets out there. And, you know, I think the Soresto collar is a great option there. It's very long acting, covers you for most of tick season in most areas, right? And they just recently put out a paper showing it blocked the transmission of things like Lyme and anaplasmosis to the dogs that were protected with the Soresto collar. And it makes sense, right? A tick that can't bite can't transmit anything. So lots and lots of great options out there. So find what's going to work for that family. And you and your practice are probably going to have to carry a few different types of things to make sure that you can have those conversations and find that fit or be able to, to script it out or to, to send them somewhere, you know, to get it as a few of these things are available OTC. But we can't just say, yeah, this is the one thing I want to carry that's going to cover all my patients because then you will have that food allergy, skin allergy, client who doesn't want to do a topical, client who doesn't want to do an oral, you know, right? But yeah, we've got so many great options now. We just got to get them used, get the clients educated, get those products out the door and get them in slash on the animals consistently. I think compliance is still one of our big issues with things like this. I 100% agree. And I think, you know, like you said, really getting into that exam room and sitting down with the client. And I love what you said about the lifestyle considerations, because I actually have a little experience with this personally, both in the clinic where, you know, the clinic I work for, we pull from, you know, people who just live kind of in neighborhoods and a little bit more of an urban setting, all the way to people like me, who I live, you know, on a chunk of land in the woods. There was not a house here before I got there. And I had to do exactly what you're describing. Like I had to do the collar as the adjunct to the oral because of ticks. And we've established, I did not want to see any ticks and I was seeing ticks and I I felt confident, you know, as far as disease transmission, but doing the combination and really addressing what works for each individual family would definitely be the most effective strategy to getting all the pets treated and really helping to control this transmission spread and all of this stuff. Yeah. And beyond the pets, right? Like there's, we can do a lot for the pets and controlling them that way, but these things are coming from the environment. And that's part of this integrated approach that we're trying to, to preach, if you will, is manage the environment, whether that's like keeping a dog in a fenced yard versus letting them run willy-nilly through the woods or keeping them <laughs> on a leash when you're hiking and they stay kind of on the trails with you where hopefully there's fewer tall grass and you know fewer ticks. To even, I mean, something that we do at my house because fire ants are crazy here is we treat our yard for fire ants and that product also has the ability to impact things like fleas and ticks and mosquitoes, which is beneficial to me because I hate mosquitoes, maybe more than you hate ticks, Cassie, because <laughs> I just, I re, I'm a mosquito magnet and I react horribly to them. Yeah. But I mean, so we'll use that environmental approach. I'm never going to not treat my dogs. That's always on hundred percent because you can't control the environment or you can only do so much, but we try to do as much as we can with that environmental component too. And it helps the products work better. They don't have to work as hard. Absolutely. And you end up with safer pets, happier clients and less disease transmission. So, you know, really everybody wins when you kind of take that segmented approach where let me manage all the different pieces and then they can come together to really, really be a good management strategy for everything in the end. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Starkey, despite bugs in general, not being my favorite things in the world, I feel a little bit better knowing that that you feel the same way about some of these critters. I, this has been incredibly educational. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking to me. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? 
Oh man, it's, it's a battleground out there for y'all. I don't envy you in uh, some of the challenges that you're facing. Like there've always been challenges with trying to get preventives in and on the pets and, and dealing with that. But anything we can do to get some of these really effective, safe, broad spectrum products in and on the pets that are, you know, coming to our practices, everyone's invested in this animal's health coming into the clinic, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be there. So educating folks as to why they need to do this and why they need to be aware and concerned and proactive, right? Because a lot of this preventive stuff, it's about being proactive. If they've already had ticks on them or a flea infestation in their home, like, yeah, we can deal with that. We can handle that and we can go forward. But most people don't ever want to have that negative experience. And this is how we achieve that through the compliant, consistent use of preventives. That way people don't have to have these negative experiences. And beyond that, they don't have to worry about their animal becoming sick or ill. And some of these things cause very severe or chronic illness. And some tick-borne diseases are even fatal, right? Like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, hepatozoonosis, if left unchecked. So we definitely need to make sure our clients are aware and we're not a a one-size-fits-all Yet, maybe we'll get there eventually. But <laughs> maybe one we, day. we still have to have those conversations. I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Starkey, thank you again so much. This has been great. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on, Cassie. Dr. Starkey, thank you so much for joining us. And I'd also like to say a big thank you to Elenco for sponsoring this episode. And thanks to all of you for joining us. If you'd like to find out more about this and other podcasts, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. It's a great day.